This is Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. My guest today is math PhD Kathy O'Neill. After beginning her career in academia, she worked at hedge fund D.E. Shaw during the financial crisis and then as a data scientist, both of which left her deeply troubled with the way algorithms exacerbate societal problems. That led to a critically acclaimed 2016 bestseller, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy, which recently came out in paperback. To combat some of these issues, she's launched an algorithmic auditing company called Orca. She also writes regularly for Bloomberg View and her blog, mathbabe.org. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I just heard you give a talk here at Tufts, and it was really remarkable. You do a great job of explaining things to a lay audience that can sometimes be very intimidating. So um, let's set the stage here for the listeners so that they can understand kind of what's going on right now. We know a little bit maybe about algorithms, probably through in part your work, but some people might not understand exactly how broadly big data and math are impacting us. So maybe you can give us like a brief tour. Sure. Um, do you want me to talk about what an algorithm is or should I talk about how they're being used? Sure. Why don't you start real quick with what an algorithm actually is? Because you have a different definition. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a phrase that's used uh, in different ways in different contexts. But what I usually mean is almost always a scoring system. People get scored. Right. And, and basically you get scored maybe on a probability that something will happen or on the probability that you're going to uh, pay back a loan if you borrow or some kind of uh, trustability index or employability, how good an employee might look like from the point of view of the scoring system. And typically um, what it's doing is it's it's separating the winners from the losers. That's right. almost every algorithm uh, in, the, in this context, in the data science, big data context is trying to find like good bets versus bad bets. So the, there might be there will be an underlying scoring system usually like maybe you can think of it as between a number between 0 and 100. But then the way it's actually used is if you're they'll set a threshold, maybe 75. If your score is above 75, then you get an interview. If your score is below 75, um, you don't get an interview. Right. There'll be that threshold, that hard number that you have to score above or below. Right. And this is being used in all sorts of ways that we haven't really necessarily thought of them being used before, perhaps. And not only that, but I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a coincidence that we don't know how many algorithms are being used. They're secret. Many times they're secret. They're scoring us without our knowledge, especially online. We're being scored essentially all the time right. when, when we go to a website. You know, the people even who build the scores might not even think of it that way, but it, that's what it is. Like... So if you go to the Capital One website, mm-hmm. they're going to suss you out. They're going to score you. They're going to try to evaluate, not knowing anything about you. They might never have seen you before. They probably haven't seen you before, whether you're a high-value or low-value customer. And then depending on their decision, they're going to build a different web page. And this will all happen in milliseconds. Right. So people think they're going to Capital One's website. No, that's not how it works. Really, you are going to... Um, you're going to signal to them that you're coming to their website, and then they're going to build the web page suited to your 
profile as they've determined it through these scoring systems. And these scoring systems in this particular example could be coming from data brokers, giving them information on other sites visited, et cetera. Is that what you're yep, talking about? All sorts of, yeah, the, the kind of data exhaust that we carry with us uh, on the internet. I mean, we can clear our cookies. We could, you know, start with a new browser, clear our cookies and clear our browsing history and all that. That would still be a signal though. I right. mean, so even the, like nothing is also a signal, right? right. Um, and the reason I mention this particular example is because if you're a high value customer, they will literally show you a different advertisement than if you're a low value customer. Um, it's not, and it's not illegal for them to do that, even if it's, even if it ends up being, you know, unfair. If they're using, for example, your geolocation, if they're using your zip code, right? And maybe there's more like minority residents in your zip code. Maybe there's more poor people in your zip code. There are laws against offering loans to people that are based on race, for example. Right. But there's no law against um, polluting your environment with advertisements based on race. Right. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're thinking of the scoring system as like a, this isn't a credit score. This is just a score that informs which credit cards will advertise to you. Including ostensibly the rates that we'll be charging you, et cetera. Yeah, different credit cards have different kinds of APR. So yeah. it might end up being the only credit card you see because you're coming from that zip code. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it might might very well affect the kind of credit cards you end up in, having in your wallet, even though t- technically there was no law broken. Right. We're using kind of one pretty simple example, but in the book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, you have quite a litany of examples. Yeah. And uh, just to, to name a few of them, you talk about crime prediction, parole, hiring, work scheduling, educational testing, credit, insurance, news feeds. So obviously we can't talk about all of those, but right. but maybe you can talk a little bit about some some of those that you find particularly troubling. Well, I'll tell you, my, my oldest son is applying to colleges right now. Right. So one of the things that's on my mind is the U.S. News & World Reports yes. algorithm. Yes. It's a ranking system. Right. Um, and it scores, it doesn't score people, it scores colleges. And it's just remarkable. It's not big data. To be clear, it's been around for far longer than big data has. But it's remarkable in the uh, sort of influence and effect it's had on our culture. Yeah. And uh, it's this weird thing, but it, it doesn't come from how good it is, how accurate it is, how trustworthy it is, but rather simply that people trust it. Right. And so it's had this really bizarrely outsized effect on the world. And I'll tell you what I mean. Like, so first of all, a little bit about how it's built, which is that it takes into consideration a bunch of different attributes of a college, many of them self-reported right. by the college administrator. So they lie about it. They cheat. They... They game the system all sorts of ways. We'll come back to that. And then other things they consider important about the colleges, like reputation, according to other administrators and stuff like that. And importantly, one attribute they don't care about at all is price. Right. Now, let's go back to the college administrators gaming the system because they do. They really do. They game the system because they know that parents care. And so they have to look good according to the system. So administrators are constantly figuring out how to improve their score. So some of the metrics that they, they care about are things like average SAT score or, or how many people come who are offered or how many people apply right? and how many people get in who apply. Right. So they do things like get a bunch of people who they know have no chance of getting into the college to apply simply because that they want to make that metric look good, that they, right. they're, they're exclusive. So they can reject more applicants. So they can reject more people. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like 
the net effect, and I could go into it more, the net effect is, number one, it's, it hasn't improved the experience for college seniors at all. In fact, it's made it worse. There are fewer safety schools because it looks bad to be a safety school. Kids end up applying to way more places. It's a much more insecure system than it used to be. And by the way, because of this metric of how many people come who've been offered to come, because of how important that is, colleges really care that you personalize your application to their school. So to send a strong signal that you'd come if offered it's, it's such a pain in the ass for high school seniors, and it's like really degraded their quality of life. And at the same time, the other thing that is, I think, really important to know about this is this, the fact that they did not count price right. while they're gaming the system means that price has gotten out of control and they don't care. They literally have no incentive to keep price under control. Because they'll because move up the rankings. It doesn't and, matter yeah. to the rankings. So yeah. it's a blind spot in that algorithm. It really shows me how, like, the discrepancy between my experience 30 years ago and my right. son's experience today. It's just, right. it, it's gotten a lot worse. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, actually, because I'm wondering what your opinion is. Should your son ignore all the rankings now that you know what you know? How, oh, do, you, how do you instruct him? We're ignoring rankings. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. We're totally ignoring rankings. Yeah. But it doesn't change what the colleges themselves are doing. It doesn't change what the colleges want from him, right? Right. Right. Um, they want him to signal that he's going to come if offered. So right. he has to go through much more rigmarole. He has to apply to more schools. Right. Um, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more work. Right. That's my point. Yes. And the, my larger point is algorithms have outsized effects because of their power. And in this case, this one particular case, it's the power that we've given those algorithms. We, parents, and then college administrators in, in response. Um, but in other cases, the power... It's quite direct. It's power. Like it's the Google search algorithm, the Facebook newsfeed algorithm, or many of the other kinds of algorithms that uh, I talk about in my book, like insurance companies wheel or credit card companies, or for that matter, parts of our government, like yep. departments of education will be assessing their teachers based on opaque scoring systems, or judges are handed sort of what are called crime risk scores for criminal for, defendants. Yes. This is the, the Compass program, for example. Is that Compass recidivism risk algorithm, but it's it's only one of many, but yes. Okay. And so, Julia Angwin did a lot of research on that. Julia Angwin at ProPublica has done an She's amazing, amazing. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that for a little bit, because that's something that has, a, you know, college is important, but probably not going to jail might even be more important. So what's going on with these recidivism risk algorithms? Well, the idea is... And it started in a good place, which many of these algorithms do. It's, it started in this place where judges are famously racist. You know, they would just sentence people to longer in prison, um, depending on their class and their race. Right. And so the idea was to inject a little objectivity into the proceedings. Right. And they were given what are called crime risk scores, like which was actually our recidivism risk scores, which is the definition of that is like, what's the risk that this person will come back to prison within two years of being let out, two or three years. And sometimes it's not come back to prison, but arrested. Yep. Um, and so, uh, you know, data scientists were asked, you know, figure out the scores. And, you know, basically you can ask any question you want. And we're going to make this more objective. The problem is that the questions that are being asked on these tests, on these, they're actually questionnaires, yeah. um, especially like the Compass model, as you said, LSIR, which is actually even more popular and okay. older. Okay. 
um, the questions themselves are proxies for race and class. Yeah. So they're asking questions like, do you live in a high crime neighborhood? Right. That's a sort of indirect way of saying, are you living in a poor minority neighborhood? Yeah. Based on the history of uneven policing in our country. Or they would ask, are you living on welfare? Or do you have a mental health problem? Are you a drinking problem? Or did you get suspended from high school? Or did you graduate high school? Or do you have a job? All of these things are like, they're not directly criminality questions. Yeah. And there's even one question, did anyone in your family go to prison? Yeah. Which is unconstitutional as a consideration for sentencing. There are also questions about what, were you convicted? You know, have you been arrested before? How many times have you been arrested? Those questions seem more objective, but actually, if you look into it, there's a huge amount of disparity for race uh, about who gets arrested for what kinds of crimes. So we know that people are five times, like blacks are five times more likely to be arrested for smoking pot, right? even though blacks and whites smoke pot at the same rates. There's like really not one question on those, those right. questionnaires that like is a fair question in, in the sense of like, if you wanted to be like, are you intrinsically a criminal? Right. You you also brought up something I thought was was a great point in your talk that almost half of murders are unsolved. Yeah. First of all, that's extraordinary on its yeah. own. But the idea that since you're not solving half of those murders, you don't have data on those murders yeah. at all. And not to mention all the other crimes that don't have a dead body. Right. Think of all the rapes that go unreported. Right. Uh, or all the assaults that go unreported. Yeah. And... You know, especially when you're thinking about like people who are worried about being deported or something like that. There's all sorts of problems with the concept of crime data. Yeah. We don't have crime data. We have arrest data. Right. We have reported crime data. Both of those data sets are very, very poor approximations of crime. Yeah. You talk a lot also about this idea that we use proxies. We get into trouble when we use proxies yeah. to try to... Um, understand what these algorithms should be measuring because we can't necessarily measure the direct thing we want. So we try to find a substitute. And well, maybe you can explain that a little bit for our listeners, but then also maybe what is the solution to that? I mean, just think, just going back to the college one, if you don't mind, uh, you know, the idea was quality. Right. How do you measure quality of a college experience? Right. Everybody would have a different answer to that question. Yep. So instead of answering it, they just made something up and kept it secret because then people might trust it. Right. You know? Right. There are really very few examples where the proxies are good. Yeah. I mean, in, in some sense, that is the story of big data, right? So, yeah. I, like, let's, let's take a step back. What is big data? Yeah. And what, how is it different from the kind of data collection we had before? And I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story about history, which I'm a terrible historian, and this okay. is going to be completely wrong, but okay. <laughs> let me just tell you my <laughs> But it'll be instructive in version. some way. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope. My idealized version of the way things worked before big data is that like we'd have polls asking people questions about their thoughts and beliefs, and the answers would be yes or no, or zero to, you know, one to five, how much does it matter to me, or do I care about abortion, or whatever, you know. Imagine, like, political polling. Sure. Now, the reason I know that's a, a ridiculous notion, that we're getting information about the very questions we care about, is because I know it always has mattered how you ask the question. Yeah. Um, of course, it matters if you ask enough people, and if you have enough data, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that we wanted to know about X, so we asked people about X. Again, one more caveat. We can't right. ask people about sex because they always lie. Okay. Right. But 
putting aside or crime and crime. Yes. But putting aside all of that, back in the day, we got to ask questions that we wanted to know the answers to. Now in the world of big data, the whole point of big data, we can repurpose data to some other right. concept, some other inference, and that everything's correlated to everything else, and we can use the power of these correlations to infer something that you're trying to hide from all this information you're willing to give us. Um, and that's why we have like Twitter sentiment analysis will f- determine whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, or what you like on Facebook is going to determine, like, you know, whether you're gay. Mm-hmm. You know, like, all that stuff is like, oh, I didn't intend to show you this, but you inferred it. That's what big data does. Right. So, all I'm saying is, like, the problem of proxies is what big data is, is working with. Big data is like, we're going to ignore the fact that we don't have the information we want, and we're going to use the information we have. Right. And that's just sort of always true, but it it gets really, really tricky when there are high stakes. So the space between the proxy and the real thing really matters. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now, back to the show. You... Uh, have a great story in the book and you also spoke a little bit today about how this has happened in the educational system and it's kind of heartbreaking actually to to hear these stories about teachers that are evaluated by systems that are punishing them for scores of their students maybe you can just give us a little summation of what's been going on there yeah i mean it's called the value added model for teachers and again it came from a relatively good place it was like we want to understand which teachers are successful, which ones are effective, which ones bring their students' scores up. So uh, that's already kind of a impoverished concept of a good teacher, someone whose scores, right. whose kids' scores are good. But the first generation of such, of such evaluation or assessment of teachers was really dumb and just basically said, if you have a bunch of low-scoring kids, then you're a bad teacher. That's sort of not fair on its face right. because we know that there's a strong correlation between poverty and bad test scores. So it was basically putting the X on the back of every teacher of poor kids. So this was an attempt to do better than that, to like level the playing field for kids, for teachers of poor kids versus teachers of well-off kids. And the idea was, we're going to ask you not to get your kid to high scores, but to get your kid above expected scores. So there had to be a concept of an expected score. And then the teacher was held accountable which was the phrase of the day, for that kid score being at least as high as expected, if not more. Right. right? So the extent to which they got them above the expected score was supposed to be their value added as a teacher. The problem was that it's just statistically too complicated. You know, we had only 20 kids and there were 24 kids in a class and expected scores have uncertainty and actual scores have uncertainty and the difference between two uncertain numbers is even more uncertain. Statistically, it wasn't robust. And we had teachers getting a 6 one year and a 96 the next year without changing the way they taught. We had a bunch of teachers in New York City who got wildly disparate scores for the same subject in the same year. It was a mess. 
And in spite of that mess, we had teachers all across the nation getting fired for bad scores. Yeah. The good news is that in Houston, recently a judge has deemed this a violation of their due process rights of some of the teachers who got got fired. So it looks to be ebbing, but it's not gone. It still exists. Right. It's it's ebbing at least in this one particular. Yeah. I think the longer story, which is the sadder story about teacher accountability, is that the accountability system wasn't held accountable. Right. Right. That's the ironic part. The sad part is that it has scared away people from teaching. Yeah. And a bunch of, instead of getting rid of bad teachers, which was its intent, it's gotten rid of good teachers. And good teachers have fled the mostly poor, mostly minority school systems that have been using these ridiculous systems of accountability. And now they work in suburban schools that are affluent. They work in private schools. They've quit the profession. And now we have a national teacher shortage. And is that, And are those more affluent schools or the private schools, are they relying less on these types of tests? Much less. Okay. Much, if, not, if perhaps not at all. Yeah. Well, so that's the thing that kind of intrigues me when we're talking about measuring things that are potentially immeasurable. Certainly, quality teaching seems to be one of those things. Yeah. And, and rich people know that. Like, rich people don't make their kids' teachers get fired for a metric that nobody understands. Yeah. So it's it's primarily the poorer people that are suffering under these regimes of what you call the weapons of math destruction. I mean, and, you know, just to be devil's advocate, like the argument is like, well, the poor kids were being underserved, so we had to do something, do something yeah. like don't poor kids deserve a good education. Now, just one word about that, if you don't mind. The underlying thing that is trying to be addressed is something called the achievement gap. Mm-hmm. which is the gap between average test scores of rich kids versus average test scores of poor kids. Right. This achievement gap has gotten wider in recent years in this country. Mm. That's not because poor kids did worse at tests. It's because they both did better at tests, but rich kids have gotten better at tests faster. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Okay. So it's gotten worse. The achievement gap is widened. Yeah. But the achievement gap has existed throughout time sure. and throughout any nation it's ever been measured. Sure. It is arguably a function of inequality. Right. So if you believe that, or if you believe that it's a function of two or three things, but part of it is inequality, which is what I think, yep. then instead of trying to find these bad teachers, and I'm not saying there aren't any bad teachers, we right. should find them, but alongside that, we should also think about uh, dealing with structural inequality itself, because right. that is just as much a culprit of this widening achievement gap as anything else. Absolutely. But that doesn't sound as good, and it doesn't involve a, like, silver bullet algorithm. Well, it seems like ultimately that's the problem is there is no silver bullet. And the algorithm itself, the whole concept, seems to me, is that there is a silver bullet. I mean, just the very idea of the algorithm. Especially this value-added model score. It's like it was almost like a religious movement in in education reform. Yeah. And you almost got the impression that that the fact that nobody understood it was a benefit rather than a detraction. Like yeah. people kind of were like, they dug it. They were like, oh yeah, nobody understands it. It's the word of God. It's it was. It literally <laughs> seemed like people were afraid of it because of the mathematical nature of it. They trusted it because of the mathematical it's, nature of it's it. Because it's science. Because it's science, right? So it was like, what else do you trust and are afraid of? It's, it is like a religion. It's like God. Yeah. They didn't want to have the conversation about what makes a good teacher again because they disagreed and it's messy and it's hard to measure. They wanted there to be a silver bullet that came in and, you know, answered their questions. 
And that, I think, is just a wonderful summation of the problem of technological solutionism. Yes. And, and it's, it's great to hear it crystallized so well. I'll add one more thing, which is like, on top of it being magical and mysterious and mathematical and unappealable, nobody was accountable. Yeah. Nobody was accountable. There, there was nobody you could, you could complain to. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, I mean, I could be wrong, but you've said, I'm quoting you, that you saw a growing dystopia with big data. And I'm, I'm wondering, since you just wrote this book fairly recently, is, is, is it still growing or is there any hope that it's turning around? I mean, I, don't, I, I would be the last person to say that dystopia isn't growing. And I, I would say algorithms definitely contribute, but it's just as much just people. Right. You know, I mean, I think about that uh, that story from last week or two weeks ago about cartoons on YouTube. Um, I'm not familiar with it. Which have been perverted so that, like, kids end up watching these oh. horrible things happening to their favorite cartoon characters. Now, partly that's an algorithmic problem because the recommendation engines on YouTube oh, you like this cartoon that's about a fairy princess? Oh, you're going to like this fairy cartoon about that fairy princess getting gang raped. Like literally that kind of crazy, crazy stuff. So that's an algorithmic problem, but it's a human problem. Like why did someone make that? Well, why is it accessible to children? You know, why is it, why is there a, a platform that thinks it needs to customize the videos that it's showing without any human intervention? And to me, that's a problem of, yeah, no, I agree. That's an algorithmic problem. That is a solutionism problem. It is saying, like, we got this. We can do recommendations without right. any kind of human intervention. But I'm just saying algorithms are working in concert with just messed up with people. With hum- fallible humans. Yeah, and for that matter, right. the propaganda machine that Facebook has become only works because people are building propaganda. Right. And I'm not saying, like, sure. I don't blame Facebook. I definitely blame Facebook. Because they've systematically ruined media. They've, mm-hmm. they've starved media for the advertisement dollars. Right, right, exactly. And so we've lost just tons and tons of very serious journalism, and this has replaced it. Um, so I get it. It's definitely Facebook's fault, but it's also just horrible people that are making this propaganda. Mm-hmm, yep. You have launched a company which I assume is meant to counteract some of these things. Orca, if I'm saying that right. Orca with two A's. With two A's, A's. Yeah. Orca. Orca. <laughs> um, so maybe tell us a little bit about how you think auditing, um, algorithmic auditing, I think you call it, how that could p- perhaps help. So my basic stance is that we have to put the science into data science. We, you know, we call it data science, but we're actually taking it on blind faith. Right. And real science can withstand tests. And we should build those tests and we should put these algorithms through the tests. And many of those tests have to do with the concept of, does this work? Mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of different ways of asking that question. And for example, there's lots of different stakeholders in any of the algorithms we just mentioned. So for the recidivism risk algorithm, the stakeholders are, for example, the judge, the judicial system, the defendant, mm-hmm. the public who doesn't want to be harmed by violent criminals. Right. And so you have to ask, is this working for stakeholder A? Is this working for stakeholder B? There's, there's basic questions. So if, right. if there's a false positive in that crime risk score, 
Um, that means that a defendant is put into prison for extra long, even though they are not going to commit another crime. Right. So that's a civil rights problem for that person. Right. If there's a false negative, that means a criminal is let out sooner into the public and maybe will harm the public. And that's a public safety problem. So anyway, the point is that like there are different kinds of failures of algorithms right. that affect different stakeholders in different ways. Right. And how do we balance all these things? Yeah. It's a complicated question. Exactly. As an auditor, an algorithmic auditor, my intention is to basically force people to answer questions like that. Okay. What is the, ba- the intended balance of this? Number one. And number two, is this algorithm faithfully executing that wish list of ethics? Right. That's how I want to hold algorithms accountable. Mm-hmm. I want, on the one hand, the data scientist to be held accountable for faithfully executing a series of values. Yep. But not for the values themselves, because the data scientist is not, you know, they're not the ethicist, right? They're not. But there needs to be some very close collaboration, right, between an ethicist and a data scientist? The data scientist has to understand what the ethical decisions that have been made mean, and they they need to understand how to translate that into code. Right. So they have to be translators. They have to be well-versed in how to do that. Yeah. That's not obvious. No, it's not obvious. And I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. Um, It might be sometimes impossible. Right. Um, but that is their job, and they should be held accountable for that. In other words, if they say they've done it, they should have to. They should be able to show evidence that they've done it. Right. Well, versus the people that actually deploy the algorithm, which yep. is technically almost always a different group of people. Yep. In fact, many of the arrangements here are a big company rents an algorithm from a small data company. Okay. Okay. So the, and the, and the standard issue right now is they don't talk about ethics at all, right. right? But my idea is that the people that are actually deploying this algorithm, they're the ones that have to agree to a certain set of ethics, a complete comprehensive set of ethics, sign their name to it. Right. And so if something goes wrong in the future, yeah. if it's because it wasn't effectively working, if it wasn't implemented correctly, that's the right. fault of the data scientist. But if it's because they chose the wrong ethics, right. then that's the fault of of the deployers, the people using the algorithm. Right. That is my model for accountability. Okay. So as an algorithmic auditor, I'm trying to ask the people who are using the algorithms that I'm auditing, like, what do you intend with this algorithm? How do you want this to work? And I will check that and make sure it's working. So you're auditing both components. I'm actually not auditing the ethical choices. I'm forcing them to def- articulate them. Okay. So who's auditing the ethical choices? Mostly lawyers, probably lawyers for the company. Okay. So lawyers for the company are going to say, oh, actually, that's illegal. How does this solve the black box problem, the, the problem that the public doesn't really know what's going on in these algorithms and can't? It is not, at the moment, the company that I'm writing, running is not a public-facing company. Okay. Unless the people that I'm working with, and some of them actually do want to make public what the results of their audit are. And they actually want to make their entire algorithm transparent. That's great. Yeah. I love that. But my real goal is to make sure that companies, large companies especially, are complying with the law Mm -hmm. and that they've checked that their algorithms are legal. Yeah. And uh, that's not happening yet. Right. So it's a first step. So it's a first step. But it sounds like from your writing and from your speaking that you have a pretty high ethical bar that you're wanting companies to reach. Well, I'm a businesswoman. I'm trying to get them to be legal. Okay. Actually, a lot. I think a lot of people want to be ethical too. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope so too. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, I'm going to start with legal. Okay. <laughs> and see where you get. I mean, and by the way, I'm also happy to push for better laws. Right. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, laws should be outlining what we think of as the sort of limits of ethics. Yeah. I mean, is are some of these algorithms, should they just be illegal? Absolutely. I think so. Okay. Could you give an example of one that you would... I think political micro-targeting ads on Facebook should be illegal. Or for for that matter, any political micro-targeted ads. I think political campaigns should say what they have to say to everyone. Yeah. And they shouldn't be able to say different things to me because I'm white or because I'm 45 or because I live where I live. Mm -hmm. Because it's separating us. It's giving us different information. It's manipulating us. Not even giving us information anymore. Right, right. It's just manipulating us emotionally and nudging us and making us more outraged. And it never clarifies what the actual policy positions are for for politicians. I say... More public debates on actual policy, less micro-targeted, tailored advertising. That seems like a perfect place to stop. So thank you so much, Kathy. It's Thanks great chatting me. with you. Nice to talk to you, Mo. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed, so all our previous reviews went away. We'd really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.